So the last number of weeks uh, through January, we've been looking at this question, who am I, and forming a biblical human identity. <clears throat> In the first weeks, we looked specifically at Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 20, or 26 to 28, three short verses, and yet there's so much packed in there for us to learn about who we are because of who God has made us to be. We're made in his image. We're, we're created to reflect God in some way. And God gave us a, a, a job. He gave us a vocation here on earth to, to rule it, to subdue it, to fill it, to, to take care of it, uh, to guard it and to keep it as, as rulers and priests. He created us for community, uh, from community, from the community that is the Godhead himself, for the community of, with one another. And he made us male and female. And so all of that's packed into that first, those three verses of God's creative act for humanity. And it would be awesome if we could just stop right there. Right? That would be a great place to stop and say, that's it. But we got Genesis 3 we got to tackle. And everything else after Genesis 3. Human identity has its origin in God. We're created in his image to reflect his character. In Genesis 2, God creates humanity, male and female, places them in the Garden of Eden, and they're given life and purpose with, within a boundary and a choice. There is one tree from which they're commanded not to eat. And it's not really the fruit of the tree or identifying the fruit that is important. It's the potential that the fruit represents. You see, the first human couple, Adam and Eve, faced a daily choice, and for how long, we don't know. Time is irrelevant in the narrative. What is relevant is whether this first human couple will live in obedience to God's will and word. Will they enjoy the abundance of what God has given in their relationship with him and with one another and the rest of the creation, or will they grow discontent? It seems like a no-brainer, right? In creating humanity with the capacity for reason, to rule, to govern, to guard, and to keep. But God takes a risk here because relationship requires choice and commitment. A human couple is always, on a daily basis, given a choice. And will they make the right choice and keep their commitments? Let's stand together. We haven't done this for a while. Read Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 225 to chapter 3 and verse 7. This is Genesis 225 to 37. I don't have it up on the screen for us today, so just hear the word of the Lord. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So here again, we have another one of those unfortunate chapter divisions that breaks up the narrative and isn't in the right spot. Uh, because key word in this whole passage is the word naked. It starts it and ends it. And it actually occurs one other time. In verse 225, they were naked and had no shame. In verse 37, they were naked and they were shamed. There's a reversal happening here. Before the fall, the couple is naked and without shame. After the fall, they recognize it and are filled with shame. Interestingly, a slight change occurs in the adjective between the two occurrences from a room to a room in Hebrew. Little vocalization change. The, the first in 225 is used to indicate there's a simple physical nakedness, but also it's, it's a way to express a lack of concealment or a disguise. It implies openness and vulnerability. The second, a room, in 3.7, however, is more often used in context relating to an awareness of guilt before God and the desire to hide from God and others. Before the fall, they had nothing to hide, and after the fall, they had everything to hide. A desire to flee rather than to be in community with one another. And this comes about because of the, a surprising character who comes into the story in chapter 3 and verse 1. The serpent whom God made, who was a creature of the field. He was more crafty than any of the other beasts. We'll come back to the, 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 the fact that he was a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. But first of all, the serpent was crafty. He was crafty. It's actually the same word as naked. It's a root. He was sneaky. Well, let's work backwards through this text a little bit. The text tells us that this was a creature of God on the earth, a beast of the field. Therefore, the opponent and the questioner of God's word and character is not in any way equal or a potential rival to the creator. This is what the, uh, the author wants us to know right now, that this speaking snake is in no way on a level ground or a threat to God at all. He's just a snake. That's all the text tells us. He is a beast of the field the Lord had made. Nahum Sarna in the Jewish Publication Society's commentary says, the serpent has always been a creature of mystery, with its venomous bite, it can inflict sudden and unexpected death. It shows no limbs, yet it is graceful and silently agile. Its glassy eyes, lidless, unblinking, strangely lustrous, have fixed in a penetrating stare. Its longevity and the regular reoccurrent slewing of its skin impart an aura of youthfulness, vitality, and rejuvenation. Small wonder that the snake simultaneously aroused fascination and revulsion awe, and dread. Throughout the ancient world, it was endowed with divine and semi-divine qualities. It was venerated as an emblem of health, fertility, immortality, occult wisdom, and chaotic evil, and it was often worshipped. 
The serpent played a significant role in the mythology, the religious symbolism, and the cults of the ancient Near East. I mean, snakes are a bit weird, aren't they? They're this kind of strange creature. Unfortunately, my mom's not here, so I get to tell a story about her. <laughs> when, when we were growing up, I can't remember what year that uh, Indiana Jones came out, the very first movie, but we had seen it first. Now, my mom hates snakes, so much so that I have a very, very vivid memory in the backyard in Langley, B.C., so I was probably grade three or four, and a garter snake just zipped by, and I, my mom screamed, grabbed the hoe, and just started hacking at this poor little snake. But anyway, back to Indiana Jones. We had seen the movie, my mom had not. My mom has very, very visceral reaction to seeing snakes, even in a movie. So we just sat there waiting when, they, when Indiana Jones dropped down and came face to face with that cobra as he's lying on the ground and then one's crawl, you know, snakes coming out of the skull's mouth and she just lost it and we just laughed a lot. <laughs> I don't think she's really forgiven us for that one. <laughs> snakes, why does it have to be snakes? <laughs> The key word here, craftier, a room, the same word for naked. It's, there's a word play going on here that links the, the end of chapter two. They were naked and no, were not ashamed, and the serpent was craftier. Same word, a room. And so there's a, a word play. There's a connection that the author wants us to see here as to what's coming next. And, and, and even the form of, of the, the starting of chapter three uh, suggests that it's a dependent sentence. It's connected back to chapter 24. To be shrewd or to be crafty with this word is, is not actually even a bad thing. Because of the, the, in other Old Testament contexts, this word appears for crafty or, or wise or cunning, and it's used in both positive and negative ways. And so it's a morally ambiguous term. It doesn't really tell us about the nature of the craftiness. Jesus himself calls us to be as gentle as doves and as shrewd as serpents, Matthew 10, 16. What matters is the intent and the outcome. What happens in this narrative is that the, the shrewdness of the serpent leads to the nudeness of Adam and Eve to try to bring the word play together here. He's shrewd, they're nude. A room, a room, a room. Not get a room, <laughs> anyway. Um, Adam and Eve, in place of the open and vulnerable relationship they have with one another, it's going to turn out to be relational loss and a running and hiding as sin comes into the picture. And that's our key theme for this whole month of February now, is the fact that we, yes, we are created in God's image and we are created for relationship and we're created to rule and govern the earth, but the fact is we are sinful, broken people. Every single person. And it happens so quickly. It takes the author of Genesis, these seven verses, to go from they were naked and not ashamed to they were naked and hid themselves. And this affects all of creation, as we'll discover over the next few weeks. 
Everything on earth is affected by sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here are the three key things that the serpent raises with Eve. And and if you've been around the church for a while, this message will be kind of a review, but it's a needed review because our our culture today wants to believe that we're good, basically good, that we've got good hearts and that we can determine our own destiny and that we don't need God and we definitely aren't sinful. That we don't have as a heart issue part of our nature something that drives us into doing wrong things. But the Bible tells us a very different story. The serpent raises three questions with Eve. What is true? What is right? And who are you really? What is true? What is right? And who are you? Did God really say, you won't surely die. You're going to become like God. All three questions cause Eve and Adam, who was with her, silently, come to that, to question the truth of God's instruction and reliability of God's warning and their identity as his image-bearing people from the first day of creation. First, they question God's instruction. Here's a perennial issue for us. When we face a situation or a choice and we're, we're conflicted about what we want to do and what we know of God's word, did God really say, As soon as you find yourself thinking, I know the Bible says, but you need to stop. I know God's word says, but at that very moment, you are deciding, you are sitting judge and jury of God's revelation and his will and purposes. Now, this does not negate the necessity to study, to wrestle with the Bible, to determine what it means and how it relates to us today. We need to be diligent students of the word. We need to seek counsel and wisdom from fellow Christians and throughout the history of the people of God as they have sought to live faithfully through the centuries. We need to do that. The question has to do with the motive of the but. Often it's just us wanting our way or an easier option, the path of least resistance. I know God says don't be angry with someone and nursing your anger is the same as murder, but you don't know what they've done. You don't know how they wronged me. I I know God says don't look lustfully at someone and it's the same as adultery, but you know, you can't avoid it. It's everywhere. I I know God says love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, but... I know God says respect the governing authorities and pay your taxes, but I really don't want to. I know God says forgive someone 70 times 7, but do you know what they did? We all come up with our own sentence in this. We can can fill in the but with all sorts of reasons that make sense to us. But what's the real motivation in pursuing a course of action apart from a heart posture, as as our heart is postured on the other side of that, but what are we really wanting? Did God really say? The serpent's first attack. Get Eve to question God's word by stating the question in such a way as to raise doubt. And here, he completely misquotes God, actually makes it up completely, so it sounds that God is ridiculous and radically oppressive. Did God really say? First, question God's instruction. Second, question 
God's rightness or righteousness. God clearly described the consequences for disobedience. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. The serpent scoffs at it, scoffs at it, and raises the question as to whether God is what God declared is accurate. Did, did God? That's not going to happen. God's like just using a fear tactic on you. Now, physical death might not be at the, at the issue here simply because of where things go in the rest of the chapter, but the death of freedom and relationship is surely in effect the moment the fruit is consumed. We see that. When we are considering a course of action that pursues the but part of the sentence, I know God said but, we also end up telling ourselves that the consequences for disobeying God won't be that significant. We, we have to do that, right? We minimize or negate the effects of our choices that it will have on our lives and the lives of others, and we ignore the ripple effect that happens. When we get to the rest of this passage in the coming weeks, we're going to notice that individual sin is never individual, and it is never private, and it is never without effect in the community. Sin has a global and social implication always. Remember when David prayed in Psalm 51? Against you, you only I have sinned after he was confronted by Nathan for murdering a guy and committing adultery with Bathsheba? Like he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba too. It does, his, his prayer does not negate the reality of his sin against them, nor the effects of his sin leading to years of struggle and dysfunction in his family and pain. David confesses his sin, he has forgiven his sin, but the consequences are far-reaching and end up destroying the nation. God said, the day you eat of it, the day you walk away, the day you say, I know God said, but, and decide to dis walk in disobedience, is the day your life starts to dis disintegrate. The deception is that our sin is private and personal, and it's not hurting anyone it's just an issue between me and God, and he'll forgive me anyway. The reality is much more complex. Our sin affects those around us and the world we live in much more than we realize. A serpent says, did God really say, doubt God's instruction, and is God really good? Is he really right? Are his consequences actually what he says they are? This is how sin starts to take hold of our lives and run the show. The third, you will be like God. And what an interesting way to put it since God said in the beginning, I am going to create humanity in my own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them to be like him. The deception was to embrace the fact that their identity wasn't what God said. God had already declared them like himself. But wait, you know, isn't that what they already were? I think we've established that already. So what's going on here? What the serpent is suggesting He is raising the question as to whether God's definition of our identity is enough 
or if it is too limiting. And we need to look for new ways to define ourselves. The suggestion is that God how is somehow holding back from them realizing their potential. God's definition of your value and vocation, he is suggesting are limited and oppressive. Get beyond all of that. Define your own worth. Define your place in yourself in this universe. God's way is way too limiting for your freedom and your potential. I know God said, but... And Eve takes it. She looks. Look at verse 6. Look at all these verbs here. She looks. She sees. She desires. She gives. Up to this point in the story, it is only God who sees and evaluates that something is good. God saw all that he created, and it was very good. And God saw what he had created, and it was good. Eve sees the fruit and says, this is good. Now Eve is taking the place of God. And God's been holding out on us. She sees it and she delights. She sees it's a delight. This will be fulfilling. Its beauty is attractive. How could this possibly be wrong? It feels so good. There's something more, the desire to, to know more, to understand but what, beyond what God said and instruct and, and instructs, to, to take the lead in discovering and personal individual development. Deeper wisdom is to be found in pursuing this rather than going to God and asking him for wisdom and revelation. I can get the answer for myself. I know there's a better way. She sees, she looks, she desires it. So she takes and eats and then gives. Interesting, the verbs for taking and giving, kind of like God took from Adam so that he could give to Adam Eve. His something to complete him, to, to, to complete the picture of male and female. Eve takes the action of God in reverse fashion. God sought to complete the lone man, and now Eve, believing the serpent, is also viewing this as completing something that was left undone by God. She takes, she eats, she gives. And what happens? Exactly, exactly what the serpent suggested. You know, this is the funny thing. He, did he, was he wrong? When you eat of it, you'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll understand more. Even God at the end of the chapter says, we've got to get them out of the garden lest they take and eat from the tree of life because now they know good and evil. They become like us. So the serpent didn't actually lie. He actually told them the truth. Truth can be deceiving. Exactly what the serpent suggested happens. Their eyes are open. They did gain a knowledge of good and evil, and they did not immediately die, at least physically. But was this a gift that God held back, or was it held back from them for their good? Bruce Waltke in his Genesis commentary says, 
This knowledge of good and evil is not a neutral state, desired maturity, or an advancement of humanity, as is commonly argued. God desires to save humans from their inclination for ethical autonomy. God desires to save humans from their inclination for ethical autonomy, meaning I get to define what's right and wrong. God was saying, I have already defined it for you. Will you live in obedience to what I have said is right and wrong? Or will you look to define it for yourself? God desires to save humans from their inclination from ethical autonomy. Having believed that they would gain, that they would gain, that they would get something new in this act of disobedience, the first human couple becomes aware that they are room, naked, with an emotional response of shame and a desire to hide from one another and from God. Again, this form of the word appears in later texts that speaks of weakness, vulnerability, and being defenseless or humiliated. In Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 48, as part of the curses for disobedience, God says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lack of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Interestingly, because of the abundance of all things. In Deuteronomy, God's basically saying, I'm going to bless you and you're going to live in a land of prosperity and blessing and you're going to be, you're going to be in charge and it's going to be the biggest trap of your life spiritually. And you're going to have to be on guard. Because when we're in a land of privilege and when we, uh, when we experience privilege, we forget that it's God. We put ourselves in that place. Isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve were doing? They lived in this beautiful garden, blessed by God, provided for by God, no shame, nothing wrong with it, but they still wanted more. And isn't that the truth for us today? We live in such abundance, and yet it's always never enough. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness, because of the abundance of all things. Now, one last thing to note here out of this passage in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall is that Adam was there. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Note that when God also shows up, and we'll look at this next week a little more, he calls to the man first. He says, calls to Ha'adam, the man, where are you? And God does not question the woman until he first questions the man. More words are directed to the man in the conversation, and Adam makes way more excuses than the woman does. Now, why would this be the case? Well, if we remember that the text of Genesis would be written much, much, much later, 
with the reader being aware of, the, of much later revelation and instruction from God throughout the whole Pentateuch, because nobody was sitting down writing this out as it happened. It was just Adam and Eve there. So nobody was taking notes. This isn't a report as it happened. Nobody videoed this. It was written much, much later, but it's also written to reflect the theology and the thinking of Israel as a whole as taught through the law of Moses. Why is Adam held so responsible for this act? And John Salehammer notes, the Mosaic law teaches that the husband is responsible for the vows of his, with, that his wife has made, Numbers 31 to 6. The author of the Pentateuch allows the reader's knowledge of Mosaic law to guide his reading of this passage. In Numbers 30, if the husband hears his wife make a vow and does not speak out, he is responsible for it. It may be important then that the author states specifically in Genesis 3 that the man is with his wife when she ate of the tree and that he said nothing in reply to the serpent or the woman. His silence may be a clue as to why the man must bear the responsibility for the actions of his wife. Last week in considering Genesis 2, that portrays the creation of humanity as a two-stage process, male and female, created separately for specific purposes. Both are created in the image of God in the community for community with clear unified vocation and to rule, subdue, fill and care and keep creation. And yet it is the man before creation of woman who begins this vocation to rule and subdue through the act of naming the animals and himself and the woman is Isha and Isha. And this shows something of the responsibility he is to take in creation order. The serpent comes and speaks to Eve, not Adam. And in doing so, the serpent subverts the order. And in doing so, sows discord and tension in the relationship. The serpent not only inverts the word of God, but his creative order. It is not that Eve is easier to trick. It is that Adam's silence brought the whole of humanity into bondage through his unwillingness to fulfill his vocation to exercise dominion over every living thing, Genesis 1.28. And this is why it is crucial to note the identity of the serpent as a beast of the field. Yes, later in Revelation, actually, we got to wait a long time in, in, in Revelation history for the identity of the serpent to be tied to Satan this text says nothing more than what is stated, that it is a serpent that is a beast of the field. And it is the failure of Adam to exercise his vocational authority as an image bearer, meaning that he is to subdue and bring into subjection all things in creation that he has failed at here. And because of it, the whole creational mandate is at risk of collapsing. We can also note that in Romans Chapter 5, Paul speaks extensively about the issue of sin and death and the human race, and it came through one man. You want to turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of, has, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam is held responsible for the first sin and the first failure, and it comes to every single one of us because of that. In addressing the question, who am I, and looking to form a biblical human identity, we cannot stop at Genesis 2. We must fully embrace the reality of Genesis 3. Our self-understanding today depends on accurately knowing ourselves as God sees us and the reality we're living. Humanity is broken, fallen, distorted, and sinful. And it's not just our individual acts, but our nature is infected by this reality. Paul is painfully clear. The sin of Adam is our sin. The sin of Adam is inherited by every human being who has ever lived except for Jesus Christ himself. How this is true is never explained, but the implication is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're going to look at Romans 3 next week very carefully. This is not a welcome message in our time that we are fundamentally flawed people. When we encourage our graduates that they can be anything you want to be, just follow your heart while ignoring the fact that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it from Jeremiah 17.9? We are setting them up for a life of disappointment. Heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Question might come up why are we held responsible for something Adam did? We weren't there, we didn't eat the fruit. I hear that on certain issues in our world. We didn't do it, we shouldn't have to apologize for it. It's not fair that we should pay the price for Adam and Eve's sin, is it? And in this, we are betraying our Western individualistic worldview. In the biblical view, Adam is our representative. And since all potential human beings have their source in Adam, so too all human beings participate in the first sin. And human history and personal experience proves that we're sinful people. And furthermore, if we think that God is unfair in this, then is he even fair in counting us righteous in his sight? If we continue to insist God is unfair in counting the sin of Adam against us, then it 
logically would be categorically unfair of him to count the righteousness of Christ for us. But this is exactly what the gospel is. Romans 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2, 4-5, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. pray. Lord, this morning we look at our human identity and we must admit that we are sinful people. That because of the sin of Adam, this, this story in Genesis 3 isn't just a historical record of one human couple messing up. It is the story of every single person down through history and every person in this room we have stood back and we said, yeah, I know God's word says this, but. And we have doubted your goodness and we have doubted your commands and we have tried to grasp at our own identity forming stuff that our culture pushes on us and we have not listened to your word. We have downplayed the consequences and we reap the rewards. Lord, help us to step out of denial that we are sinful, broken people who continue to sin and continue to break. Help us to come to you because in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore and we can't find them anywhere else. Help us to come to you because we know that we have an advocate with the Father that when we sin, he's going to stand up for us and he's going to intercede for us with words that we can't even express. That we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way and yet without sin, and yet he laid down his life for us, that we may have life in him, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Lord, as we, as we face this reality of our sinfulness, May you lead us toward repentance. Lead us to the foot of your cross. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And no amount of our trying, our doing, our serving, our ministry, our giving, none of it is going to stand up at the, end of the, at the end of the day. It is only being found in the holiness and the righteousness of Christ that we have any hope to give to have. So Lord, help us to face our darkness and then turn to your light, for we need it desperately. In Jesus' name, amen.